All right, let's seek God together. Father, reveal to us your justice. Help us to understand what it means that our God is just in all his ways. We pray, Lord, that we would be glad for your justice and take heart from your justice as Christians. And Lord, if there's anyone that's going to be listening to this message either here or on Facebook or over the internet that is not saved, Lord, may they tremble before your justice that they might come to you in repentance and faith and find life in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So folks, last Sunday we meditated on two of the attributes of God, his mercy and grace. And you'll recall that mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. And grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. So the two sides of a similar situation. But I, I realized, you know, we're never going to really appreciate God's mercy unless we understand his justice. So if I could have gone back, I would have done justice first and then mercy, because then we would have had the full impact of mercy. But we're, gonna, we're going back today and we're going to meditate on the justice of God. So let's just start off with some questions. First one is, what is it? What is the justice of God? The, the Greek word for justice has the very same root as the word righteousness. It's decay. So that tells us that the justice of God is synonymous with the righteousness of God. So if that's true, then the justice of God means that God will give to every man what is right. He's going to do to every man in the end what is right. God's going to give every man what he deserves. And as we were reading through our scriptures this week in Luke as a church, we came across Luke 23, and I, I saw the thief on the cross had a really, really good understanding of justice. The thief on the cross said, We indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Right there is a perfect definition of justice. Justice is to receive what we deserve for our deeds. So when God exercises justice, he gives to every man what they deserve. So that's the justice of God. The Puritan Thomas Watson put it like this, The wicked will drink an ocean of wrath, but not sip one drop of injustice. An ocean of wrath but not one single drop of injustice, because God will be just in all his ways. So that's the answer to the first question. What does the Bible say about the meaning of the justice of God? But number two, what does the Bible say in general about the justice of God? And I want to just share four texts from the Bible to give you an overview of what the Bible teaches about the justice of God. So the first is the one that we read this morning from Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now notice a few things in that passage. All his ways are just. There's not a single way of God that is not just, according to this passage. Every single thing God does is just. And then it says, 
He's a God who is without injustice. So first he says all his ways are just, and then he says he's a God that's without injustice, just to make the point. And then thirdly, he says he's a God of righteousness, which is the same thing as justice. He's a God of righteousness. And then Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So here we have the foundation of God's throne, and it's righteousness and justice. Well, what kind of a person sits on a throne? King. A king does, right? And also a judge. A judge has a judgment bench that he sits on to administer his sentences. So kings and judges are on a throne, and the basis or the foundation of that throne is righteousness and justice. So we're talking about something that is at the core of God's essence or nature or being. Justice is who he is. He cannot not be a God of justice. He would have to cease to be God to be anything other than just because that makes up who he is. And then third text is Acts 17, 30 and 31. In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So here we're told that there's coming a day in which God is going to exercise judgment. He's fixed a day in which he will judge the world. But how will he judge the world? This text says he's going to do it in justice. In other words, God will be strictly just when he meets out the eternal sentences of all mankind. There is a fixed judgment day. God only knows that day, but it's fixed. And all of world history is speeding towards that day and is going to culminate when we all stand before the judgment seat of God to receive the sentences that we justly deserve. And then a final text to give us a just a broad picture of God's justice is Revelation 15 verses 3 and 4. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. So this gives us a flavor for who God is when it comes to justice. He's perfectly just in all his ways. But third question I want to ask this morning is, do we see any biblical examples of the justice of God? Now I'm not thinking here of the final judgment day, but I'm thinking of throughout history, do we see any biblical examples of when God exercised justice? And we see all kinds of them. And I just want to kind of recount those for you to fill your mind with these thoughts. When Adam and Eve first sinned, what happened? God pronounced curses. And then he banished them from the Garden of Eden. In Noah's generation, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so the Lord brought a great flood upon the earth to wipe out all flesh except for Noah and his immediate family. He destroyed almost all of mankind. God sent fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah 
to destroy them because of their wickedness. We see another example of the justice of God here. When Pharaoh refused to let the children of Israel go to worship the Lord, God sent ten great plagues upon the land. An example of the justice of God. When the children of Israel bowed down to the golden calf, God commanded the Levites to go throughout the camp and kill with their sword every man his brother and every man his neighbor. And that day about 3,000 people were killed. God's justice was executed. When Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire in the tabernacle before the Lord, the Lord struck them dead. When Achan took some gold that was under the ban, God revealed who he was, who had stolen it, and he commanded the children of Israel to stone him, and not just him, but even his family. They were stoned to death. An example of God's justice. When David pridefully numbered the men of Israel, you remember that story, Rather than humbly trusting the Lord for victory, he numbered his men, looking to himself and his great might, military might. God sent a pestilence for three days, which wiped out 70,000 people. That was God's justice for that great sin. And we would think of what David did and think, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Well, that's because we don't see things the way God does. God, God sees things perfectly. When the northern kingdom gave themselves to idolatry, the Lord gave them into the hand of the Assyrians to be carried away captive. And then when the southern kingdom did the same thing, when they committed idolatry, the Lord gave them into the hands of the Babylonians to be carried away for 70 years in captivity. When the Jews rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior and Messiah, God sent the Roman army to destroy Jerusalem and to destroy the temple. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to God, the Lord struck them dead. When Herod was lifted up with pride, the angel of the Lord struck him and he was eaten by worms. When Elymas, the magician, opposed the gospel, the Lord struck him with blindness. When the Corinthians selfishly ate and drank of the food before the other members of the church gathered, the Lord struck some with sickness and others with death. So these, these examples are in your Bible. They don't jive well with our modern version of God here in America in the 21st century, but they're in your Bible. God is a just God. We have to fear this God because this God will execute justice. Now let's go on to number four. What would be necessary for God to exercise justice? And so think in your minds right now, in a court of law, and you have a judge who has to judge a courtroom situation, what does that judge need in order to make sure that his sentences upon the defendant are righteous and just? Well, number one, he has to have a perfect knowledge of all of the facts. Because if he lacks the facts, he may make an error in his judgment. So he needs to know the facts. And the good thing is that we've already seen from God's omniscience that his knowledge, the Bible says, is infinite. There's nothing that is withheld from God. He possesses all knowledge of every one of his creatures. He knows their past, their present, and even their future. He understands the hidden secrets that nobody else knows except for him. He knows their thoughts and their deeds and even the motives of their heart that go into every action. And he even knows what hypothetically would happen if they had made this choice. I mean, it's amazing, the knowledge of God. 
there's no, there's no boundary to, to the knowledge of God. So he's the only one in all the universe with perfect knowledge. So he's the only one who's qualified to be our judge. He has perfect knowledge of all the facts. Secondly, this judge would have to have the power to execute the sentence that he renders. In other words, in order for a judge to be able to make the right decision in every situation, not only would he have to know all the facts, but then he'd have to be able to execute that sentence. A lot of times in our judicial system, mistakes can be made. Number one, the judge didn't know, know everything he needed to know to make the righteous decision, but even if he did, things can happen. Like a, a convicted prisoner could escape, and so justice isn't served. Or there might be some kind of a legal loophole that gets him off scot-free. So we don't have a perfect judicial system down here, but God has the power, because he's omnipotent, to execute the sentences that he levels upon every human being who ever lives. He has all knowledge, and he has all power. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 12, 5, Fear him who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, I say again, fear him. So God has the power. But let's, number five, let's take a look at this question. How is the final judgment going to reveal God's justice? The final judgment. And we're going to camp out in Acts chapter 20 for the remainder of our time this morning. And we're going to look at the great white throne judgment. But just recall with me that passage in Acts 17. In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man whom he has appointed, and he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. We're talking here about the judgment day, a fixed day in the future where Jesus Christ is going to judge man. It just tells us here that he's going to judge the world by this man whom he has appointed and we know who it is because he raised him from the dead it's Christ so let's go over to Revelation 20 and let's take a look at verses 11 to 15 Revelation 20 verse 11 then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In every court case, you have at least these four things. You have a judge. You've got the person who's on trial. We'll call him the defendant. Then you've got the evidence that is presented in the court case against this defendant and then you have a verdict that is rendered by the judge so the judge the defendants the evidence and the verdict and all four of those things are found here in Revelation 20 11 to 15 
So let's take a look at those in turn. First of all, the judge. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Who's the judge? Whoever it is, he's sitting on a great white throne. Acts 17.31 says that God is going to judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And we know who the man is. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be the judge on this day. We know that because he told us that very clearly in John chapter 5. And verse 22 and then 26 and 27. Listen to the words of Jesus. He said, for not even the Father judges anyone. But the Father has given all judgment to the Son. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so, He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself, and He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So Jesus says very clearly that the Father has given all judgment to Him. The Father doesn't judge anyone. He's given that, that responsibility to His Son. And then 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of who? Christ. Christ. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So it's crystal clear that the one that's going to exercise judgment on that day is none other than Jesus Christ. And isn't it fitting though that Jesus would be the one that would be our judge because he assumed our human nature. He became a man. It, it might be a little strange if pure deity were to exercise judgment but one who is deity and humanity in one person it's just fitting that he that the one who would be our judge is one who became a man and lived among us now the throne is described as being great it's a great throne Christ is sitting on a great throne why would it be described as great I think it's because of the greatness of the destinies that the one sitting on the throne is going to render. He's going to give out eternal destinies to every person. The issues are so, the stakes, I should put it this way, the stakes are so high that the throne is great because the, the, the decisions he renders are going to last for all eternity. Heaven and hell hang in the balance in this judgment. And the throne is also described as, described as being white. It's a great white throne. White in the Bible is the color of purity. And I believe it's called a white throne because the decisions rendered by Jesus Christ on this day will be righteous. There will be no blemish, no flaw, no mistake made. What he decides on this day is going to be right. Remember, that's the definition of justice. God giving what is right to every person. Pure, holy, and right. And he's also pictured as the one from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Now, what's that talking about? I believe it's talking about what we read of in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 10. 2 Peter 3.10 The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. 
from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. They're, well, in the words of Peter here in verse 10, they're destroyed and they, they're burned up. So earth and heaven flees away before the presence of this one who's on the throne. In other words, earth and heaven are so insignificant compared to the greatness of the one who is now appearing on this great white throne. So there we have the judge described in Revelation 20. Now let's take a look at the defendants, the people that are on trial. Who are the defendants here? Who's on trial? Verse 12, I saw the dead, the great and the small. That's who's on trial. The dead, those who have died. The great and the small. The great, meaning presidents, kings, dictators, billionaires, people with authority and power in this world, and the small, people who are poor, paupers, the homeless, disenfranchised, people who have no authority or power in this world, and everyone in between. He's saying everybody, the great and the small, they're all there, and they're standing before the throne. Now, Early on in my Christian life, I was taught that at this throne, at this judgment in Revelation 20, it's only the lost that are going to be judged. And that, it, it comes because I was sitting under dispensational teaching. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But basically, they say there's several different resurrections and judgments. This is the final judgment. It's only of the lost. You have the judgment of the righteous earlier on before this thousand years. But since that time, I've studied it again and again, and I, I've, I've discarded that view because I just don't think it's biblical. I believe at the final judgment, everybody's there, and everybody's getting judged. And I'll tell you some reasons why. Matthew 25 seems to me pretty clear. And Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So he uses a phrase there, all the nations and sheep and goats are there, right? Sheep are the saved, goats are the lost. We know that because the sheep hear the words, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So those are the righteous, those are the saved. But the goats are the lost because he's going to say to them, depart from me you cursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And Jesus ends up that whole section in verse 46 and he says, these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So at the very same judgment you have saved and lost and this, the king sitting on the throne is giving judgments that will affect everyone, not just the lost, Everyone's going to be there and they're going to hear the words from his lips of where they're going to be spending eternity. We also have another instance of this in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Well, who is the all that is going to come forth? Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds, to a resurrection of judgment. Now when is this going to happen? It says an hour, a single hour is coming in which everybody, righteous and unrighteous, are going to hear his voice and come forth from the tombs. 
There's going to be a general resurrection of everybody at the same time. Some will be resurrected to life, some to damnation. So when we read Revelation 20, don't exempt yourself and say, well, that has nothing to do with me. No, I believe we're going to be there. We're part of the dead, the great and the small, that are going to appear before the throne, and we will receive our eternal sentence as well. Now, let's get back to Revelation 20. Can any of these defendants avoid this trial? No. <laughs> we know that because it says in verse 11, no place was found for them. What does he mean, no place was found for them? I think he means no place was found that they could hide or escape or avoid coming before the judge. There's no place they can go. Earth and heaven has fled away. They can't hide on earth. They can't hide in heaven. All there is left is them standing before this king on his throne to receive their judgment. We will not be able to avoid this judgment. It behooves us if we act in wisdom to prepare for it now. We have one life to live and then it's over and then we meet our king and he exercises judgment with strict justice. Where do these defendants come from? Look at verse 13. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. So I believe this probably has reference to those who have died at sea. Their bodies cast overboard, maybe eaten by sharks, whatever. They, they died at sea. Their bodies are raised from wherever they come from. And then he says, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. So if you didn't die at sea, you died on land. Your body's turned to dust in, the, in its coffin. God takes those dust particles. He puts them back together, raises you again to life. And you stand before him. And also, what about your soul? Here it says, Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Hades. The Hades is the place of departed spirits. When your soul dies, the Bible talks about Hades. You go into Hades. Of course, we know that the righteous go to be with the Lord. The unrighteous go, and they're not with the Lord in a holding place for the final judgment, but all of that can be referred to as Hades, the place of departed spirits. So God takes these spirits from that place, He reunites them to their bodies that have been raised from the dead, and all men now are standing before the Lord to hear His judgment upon them. So those are the defendants. You and me and every person, every son of Adam that has ever walked this earth what about the evidence that is going to be presented at this judgment? Verse 12. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Books were opened. What's recorded in these books that are being opened on this judgment day? What's, what's written in the books? I believe we can tell that because at the end of verse 12 it says... And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. Their deeds are what is written in these books. Did you know God has an indelible record of everything you and I have ever done? And he doesn't forget. He knows. <laughs> he knows. Now you might be able to keep secrets, skeletons in the closet from other people. You can't keep them from God. He knows every single thing we have ever done. Even the thoughts we've thought and the motives for which we've done the deeds, which might not have been for, the deed might have looked good to others, but maybe the motive was corrupt. God knows all of that. And it's all written down in his book. 
And it's interesting to me that when you study the New Testament and you look at the judgment of God, you don't find God judging us for our faith. You always find him judging our deeds. Everywhere you look, we already read 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every person must be judged according to the deeds which they have done in the body, whether good or bad. So it's, the judgment is of our deeds. God's going to look at your life. What about the sinner's deeds? What is the Lord going to see when he looks at the lost person's deeds? He'll see a life full of sin. He'll see a life where that person has broken God's law again and again. He's going to see lies and dishonoring of parents. And he's going to see a lie of fornication and adultery other sexual sins. He's going to see a person who lacks trust, a person who cannot be depended upon, a person who has cheated others and has loved only himself and not people in his, in his life. He's going to see a life full of sin. And it's all going to be written down in the book. And the Lord is going to reveal the deeds of the person. All will know. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. So God's law, when our deeds are measured to it, is going to reveal our, our, our sinfulness and our rebellion to that law, where we have broken the law again and again. But what about the Christian's deeds? If the Christian is there and God's judging his life and he opens his book and he shows the evidence of what the, how that Christian has lived, what's God going to reveal? Well, he's going to reveal some sin, isn't he? Because yeah. <laughs> all of us are sinners. He's going to reveal how we've broken his law. That's true. But he's also going to show some other deeds. He's going to show some righteous fruit that has been produced by his Holy Spirit in our lives. He's going to show the times when we have loved him. When we have gotten up and sought his face, opened his word, prayed to him, how we have loved our neighbor, how we have served other people within the church or people in our neighborhood, how, I mean, the, the fruits that come forth from a life filled with the spirit, he's going to show those things too as evidence that this person really did believe. It's going to be proof that this person was a Christian. Jesus talks about the fact that on judgment day, he's going he's gonna to find out, did you feed the poor, the hungry? Did you give drink to those who were thirsty? Did you visit those who were in prison? Did you clothe the naked? As proof of whether you are a sheep or a goat, it's our deeds. Do you see? It's our deeds that will give final proof on that day. The Lord's going to show the universe. That he's one of mine. Look at this in his life right now. Look at, look at what he did. Look how he gave his money to serve others. How he wasn't always thinking about himself, but he was thinking about the kingdom. And he was thinking about serving other people. Here's proof, the Lord will say. So there we have the evidence. It's the deeds. It's the deeds. What about the verdict? The final verdict in this courtroom. First of all, the lost. 
Verse 15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's one sentence that the lost will experience. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. If your deeds prove that you do not love the Lord Jesus, and your name is not found written in the book of life, this is your future. I can't imagine anything more horrifying than to be thrown into a lake of fire. Can you? I can't. There's an old adage, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. So if you've experienced not only a physical birth, but a spiritual rebirth, you only experience one death, a physical death. But if you have experienced two births, a physical and a spiritual birth, you only die once, you don't, you don't die twice. The, the lost are going to die twice, physically and then eternally. They're going to experience that. Now, how long does someone remain in this lake of fire? There's different viewpoints on this. There are some who believe in annihilationism, which means that they will be punished for a period of time and then God will destroy them and they'll cease to exist. That's the view of annihilationism. Uh, there's another view that says, in the end, Christ's death is so powerful, it's going to save everyone. So maybe they'll have to face uh, some suffering for their sins, but in the end, God is going to apply the merits of Christ's death to everyone and save them. That's universalism. But the traditional Christian view has always been eternal torment, meaning that this lake of fire doesn't ever go away, and you don't ever go away you are always dwelling in this lake of fire. Now if you go back to chapter 20 verse 10, we're going to see something here. It says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the strongest language in the Greek you can use to express eternity. Day and night, forever and ever. So at least the devil and the false prophet and the beast are going to be there forever and ever. And I don't see any reason why the, all the others that are thrown into the very same lake of fire get out early. In fact, when Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46, these will go away into eternal punishment. So I, I'm unconvinced by universalism and annihilationism, it seems to me that the clearest biblical evidence we have is for the traditional Christian view, which is eternal torment. No matter, and I, I totally get how difficult it is to even consider that for very long. Jerome and I were just talking about this yesterday. Try to meditate on hell and see how long you can do it without just blanking out your mind and saying, I can't think about this anymore. It's really, really hard to consider it for very long because it is so horrifying, the prospect of people going there forever, and there's no way out. But that seems to be what is expressed in this text here, Revelation 20. So that's the verdict upon the lost. They're cast into the lake of fire. Their names are not found written in the book of life. What about the saved? The saved are going to be sinners, so if they are not cast into the lake of fire, it's because those sins somehow have been removed from them, whereas the lost sins are not removed from them. Thank God there's not only one book, but there's another book. Do you remember reading that? Verse 12. 
books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life thank God there's another book because if all there is is books and, and God finds us guilty because of our deeds we have no hope of ever surviving this judgment but there's another book that's opened on judgment day and it's the book of life and look at verse 15 if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life he's thrown into the lake of fire that means some people's names are found written in the book of life and the ones that are found written in the book of life are not cast into the lake of fire this is a book of life meaning they receive eternal life when God exercises his strict justice on judgment day somehow God is able to give life to this group while giving judgment and punishment to this other group now you might say okay great how do I get my name written in that book that's the most important thing if it's not there I'm gonna be cast into the lake of fire what do I do well this is a really hard question to answer because if you just read what Revelation says about this book like go back to chapter 13 go back to chapter 13 and this is a different context but it speaks about the book of life we'll look at verse 8 Revelation 13 8 all who dwell on the earth will worship him everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain so when were these people's names written down in the book? Was it when they became Christians? Nope. No. It was from the foundation of the world that their names were written there. If you are going to be in heaven with Christ, it's because he wrote your name in this book from the foundation of the world, according to Revelation 13, 8. Now, if you believe in Christ, that's proof that your name has been written in that book if you repent of your sins you're just giving evidence that he recorded your name in that book but if you go on your whole life and will not repent and will not trust in Christ you have no reason to believe that your name is in that book so there's the verdict upon the saved life life now let's draw out some conclusions God is absolutely just we've seen that he's just in all his ways there's no injustice with him so therefore non-christian if you're not a Christian be afraid that should be your response to a text like this be afraid because God is going to ex execute justice in your life you can be sure of that absolutely sure God would have to cease to be God not to bring justice that's who he is he can't not be that way right and if you have no one to remove your sins you deserve everlasting punishment for your crimes that's what justice will give you and you, you can't get rid of hell by just imagining it away or pretending it doesn't exist or just ignoring it and thinking on other things none of those things are going to erase the reality of hell hell is not going to disappear unless God can di disappear because God is the one who enforces hell so unless you can get rid of God which you can't God's not going to up and disappear you can't get rid of hell and you can't get rid of his justice you need to prepare now so that you can face this final judgment and so if you're not a Christian 
God's word to you today is to repent. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope of everlasting life. And if you'll do that, you'll find out he wrote your name from the foundation of the world in the book of life. But Christian, let's turn our attention to the Christians. Number one, I would say be glad. Be glad. Because God's justice condemns those outside of Christ, but God's justice saves those who are in Christ. And let me try to make that clear. Remember, God's justice means he gives to every man what they deserve. If you are in Christ, you deserve life. Now you say, well, wait a minute, how can that be? I don't deserve it. But you're thinking of yourself outside of Christ. Think about yourself being in Christ. If you're in Christ, you deserve what Christ deserves. That's the beauty of grace. Grace draws us into Christ. Now, what does Christ deserve? He deserves life. He kept the law. He, he never violated the law of God in any respect. So he was the only one who ever perfectly kept God's law and he's earned life. And if God puts you in Christ, you now deserve life because your representative earned it on your behalf. It's not that you're personally worthy, but you are now righteous in the Son. See, so God's justice ensures life for those who are in Christ. The whole question here is not do I... You know, can I be better? Can I do more good works? The whole question is, are you in Christ or not? Christ is the focus of everything. Are you attached to Jesus Christ? That's where life is found. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The whole issue is, are you in Christ? And if you're in Him, God's justice is going to give you everlasting life because Jesus earned it and it's just for God to apply it to all who are in his son thank God so be glad Romans 8 1 there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus are you in Christ Jesus there's no condemnation for you God would have to be unjust to condemn you if you are in Christ because the merits of Jesus are applied to all those who are in the son thank God and then secondly, Christian, take heart. Because sometimes justice is not done down here. Right? We all know that. We don't live in a perfect world. I, w I was watching a YouTube video about the Holocaust and what happened after World War II. And the disturbing thing is there were many, many, many Nazis who were never brought to justice for the, thing, the horrible things that they had done to other people human beings murdering millions of not only Jews but homosexuals, gypsies, the list goes on, anyone who they didn't deem to be worthy of being in their their nation and some of these people after the war emigrated and they went to other countries and they were never found and they were never brought to justice and they live comfortable lives and you think Lord that's not right but there's coming a day when all things are going to be made right and it can disturb us and it can bother us right now but wait a minute it's not over yet the Lord is coming the Lord is going to make all things right our African American brothers and sisters suffered a lot of injustices during the slavery what was it 300 years God is going to make things right I mean, the people that have been oppressed and abused and put down and that have, have untold suffering, there's coming a day when everything's going to be right. 
You're not going to have to be disturbed or upset. You're going to see, okay, the Lord has done it. The Lord has done what is right in His eyes for all people. So be glad. Take heart. There's coming a day. Romans 12:19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will. Not I might. I will. There's coming a day when the Lord will repay. And justice will be served. And everything will be turned right side up. So take heart. Be glad, Christian, because God is just. Lord, thank you for this attribute that fills us with gladness and it fills us with hope that, Lord, one day all these injustices that we see around us will no longer be unjust, that you're going to take care of everything. Lord, we praise you that you are committed to doing what is right and that we can trust you because you have all knowledge and you have all power. You are the perfect judge. Lord, I pray that we would prepare now for eternity, prepare now for this day that has been fixed in which you're going to judge the world in righteousness. Lord, for those that are not saved, that are hearing this message, I pray, Lord, that they would turn right now. They would stop whatever they're doing. They would get alone with you right now. They would talk with you and cry out to you. That, Lord, you'd grant them mercy and that you would save their souls, that they would turn from their sin and put all of their hope and trust in Jesus Christ as their righteousness and their hope and their representative and their surety and their mediator that he would be there all in all so Lord make this a message that would bring salvation to some in Jesus name Amen